waves are his divine Christ will hold me fast Precious in his holy sign He will hold me fast And he'll not let my soul be lost His promises shall last Bought by him at such a Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast, raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast, till our faith is turned to sides, when he comes at last, he will hold me fast, he
mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardness depart. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep for the praise of the mercy I Mine all praise to the Spirit whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine.
I do pray as Austin comes up that you would give us help in our uh, attention, Lord, that we would give attention to your word, attention to truth. Lord, we ask that your word will um, shake us up, Lord, that it would rearrange us and do whatever it needs to do for us to be more like Jesus. And we pray that we would have an uninhibited um, uh, uh, allegiance to your word. Lord, that we would be laser-focused and dialed in as Peter was when he first got out of the boat. Lord, I pray that we would be that focused. Lord, I ask that you would give Austin great grace and just a great measure of favor as he gets ready to teach. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. If you have a Bible, I hope you do. Turn with me to John chapter 19.
And as you're turning there, let me say it's good to be back worshiping with you. Uh, my wife and children and I um, spent Christmas in Tennessee, and then we went and visited uh, my sister in Georgia over New Year's. So over the last two weeks, we've made several trips, the four of us and our two eight-month-old Australian shepherds uh, in a minivan. So that's been very exciting. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's, it's good to be back and to be worshiping with you today. Uh, so we're in John chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 38 through 42 and the burial of Jesus today. John, eight, uh, John 19, verse 38. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because, the Jew, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to this point in Scripture that I think so often we view it as a footnote, Lord, would you take opportunity to peel back the curtain in heaven and let us see Jesus high and lifted up, that we might stand in the tomb of our resurrected Savior and King and High Priest and see Him seated at your right hand. And may it embolden us and may it cause us to worship. Father, would you, through no merit of my own, would you bring your word to bear on our hearts this morning? Father, would you help me to recall the things that you have shown me the things that are edifying for us today. And Father, anything that's extraneous, that's unnecessary, and Father, would you leave that at the door? Would you bless your word, Father, as we study it this morning? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, we've come to 2021. Welcome, right? As I listened to the radio the last couple of weeks and you know, read things online, I don't know that at least in the majority of our lifetimes, I don't know that there's been a, a year that more people have been uh, eager to bury in a sense, uh, you know, to say, be gone, foul fiend, and welcome the new one. Um, and and I don't know about you, but for me, particularly just as a, as a Christian, the New Year's is always very interesting because there's a part of me that's sort of a, you know, hopeless romantic and looks at it and goes, yeah, new year, you know, new things come in. I, get, I can get excited kind of with the rest of the culture. But then there's also this just very staunch practical side of me and goes, you know, I mean, we come up with this idea, don't we? You know, I mean, it, what's the difference between one day and another? I mean, it's all we, we kind of we come up with this idea. We celebrate it, you know, new year, new things, you know, the old is gone. It's like. You know, history and all the things that the Lord has planned, I mean, it's a futile effort, you know, really, uh, because it's just the turning of one day and another one, and yet we choose to celebrate it. Um, so there's sort of this this humble hope that I kind of come to a new year with of, yeah, okay, new things, but I'm like, it's uh, it's another day, and there's no guarantee that the next year is going to be better than the you know, the next. Uh, 
or than the, than the last one. Um, but thinking about how we typically approach a you know a new year, th there's the project of the new year. You look back on the old stuff, and you, you sort of you know you 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 excite you're excited about the things that were good, uh, but you you in a sense you kind of bury the things that are bad. And you go, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to move forward, and we're going to do new things, new great things. And there's a project in a sense for you know for uh, a, a new year. Um, but there's always that struggle, you know, that's there. <laughs> Don't we kind of always do this? You always you start the new year well, and then you get to the end of the, the year, and you're like, that, that didn't really go as I had planned. So we're going to do this again, you know, and we do this over and over. And I mean, this is the cycle. I see lots of smiles and head nods. Good. Everybody does this. I'm not the only one. <laughs> um, and, and so thinking about that this morning and it, you know, being a new year, I think it's fitting that where the Lord has us today is the burial of Jesus. Um, because we find something very starkly different when we look at the burial of Jesus. Um, we see a grander hope. We see a humility. We see humbleness taking place, but we see a grander exaltation than anything we can hope for in a new year. Um, so that's what I want to look at you know, this morning. I want to look at the burial of, uh, of Jesus. And I first want to ask the question of, What's the significance of Jesus' burial? Why include it? All four Gospels include the account of, uh, of the burial of Jesus. And I, I encourage you, read all, uh, all, all four of them. It um, gives you a good, clear, full picture of, you know, of what happened. Um, but for our purposes, we're in John, and so we're going to just stick with John. I may kind of reference a couple of the others, um, but that's where we're going to be this morning is in the section in John and John's account of it. Um, and, and John includes this more than just a... Necessary thematic, thematic element in order to move the story along. John doesn't write like that. John doesn't write like he really cares about. Okay, I'm going to paint this really clear movie picture so you can see everything that's happening. I mean, John's content to tell you a story and leave you hanging. You know, whereas in our culture, it's like we need more here to complete the story. John will tell you what he wants you to hear, and then he moves on without actually closing that part of the story out. Um, and so. When John includes something like this, the burial of Jesus, it's more than just, well, you need to know this in order to see this clearly, which is true. We need the burial of Jesus in order to see the resurrection, in order to see what happens at the tomb, all of these things. But John intentionally includes this, I think, for larger reasons that are necessary for Christ's humility, but then also for his exaltation. We find here... A funeral record fit for a risen king. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at two key elements of Jesus' burial that John in includes. One is the, the bold faith of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And we're going to look at that just briefly and then see how these two men and their stepping out in faith, coming out of the shadows in a sense, should encourage us but then also challenge us. But then I also want to look at the burial of Christ. And I want to look at just some of the specific details that John includes and how they point to his exaltation, his being risen, and all the things that he would accomplish through his resurrection. So what this does is, in a sense, sets us up for, for glory in his resurrection. Okay? So that's, those are the two aspects right there. Application is going to be real, real simple. To strengthen our faith, to, faith, faith, to step out in boldness. <coughs> 
but then also just to cause us to gaze upon the risen Savior in his burial tomb and wonder and marvel at who he is. Okay, very simple. All right. All right, so let's look first at the bold faith of Joseph and Nicodemus. Okay, so we're here. Jesus is crucified. He's died. It's coming evening uh, before the Sabbath. <clears throat> and Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. Now, all four Gospels record that Joseph was a wealthy man. He was part of the Sanhedrin. Um, you know, he was on the Jewish council. Um, he didn't approve of the Jews' plans to crucify Jesus. Maybe he wasn't there. You know, maybe he was. Maybe you know, whatever reason, he's not. You know, he, he's not uh, present in those accounts. They don't talk about him. But they're specific. The, in, in one of the other gospels, that says he did not approve of their plans. He was a secret disciple. Um, and he, uh, one of the others, I think it's Luke, says he was waiting for the kingdom of God. All right, so, so his mind's towards the coming of the kingdom of God. He's looking for the Messiah. No, he's found Jesus. He's putting his hope in him as best he can here prior to the resurrection. But he's also got this tension going on because he holds this position in the Jewish High Council, and he's seeing the corruption. He's seeing all the things that are going on there, that this is displeasing to the Lord, and yet he's like, this is where I am. This is where the Lord has me. I'm going to try and be faithful in this responsibility that I have. But it's risky there for him to step out and align himself with Christ. And so we come to the point where Jesus is crucified and, and Joseph goes to Pilate. Now, one of the things you have to understand about, uh, about Roman crucifixions and what happens to criminals afterwards is when a criminal was crucified under Roman law, they were typically just thrown in a common grave. You know, that was it. And, and typically, family and, you know, anybody connected with that, with that criminal was not permitted to mourn over them. It was further just extraction of that punishment and that public humility for that criminal and their family that once that person was crucified, their family no longer saw them anymore and they were just thrown in a common grave so it's very it should be very surprising to us that when jo when joseph comes and asks for the body Pilate consents Pilate says yeah you can you can have him in fact Pilate even says well i need to make sure that he's dead and so he sends someone to go verify that jesus had actually died and he confirmed it and so Pilate gives the body to to joseph <clears throat> And we see here even the sovereign hand of God even in allowing this to take place. But not only that, that all this is occurring hours before the Sabbath. Keep in mind, according to Old Testament law, that it was unlawful in Jewish custom for a body to be left out after dark uh, on the Sabbath. But you were also not permitted to bury a body on the Sabbath. So you've got this tension taking place here, okay? Uh, it, with it within the Jews. Now, all this, keep in mind, Jesus is not in favor with any of those who are, you know, on the high council, with the exception of Joseph, and perhaps maybe one or two others. We don't know. Um, so, the Jew, the Jewish leaders, could very likely just be like, you know, that's in the hands of the Romans. You know, that's on us. We wash our hands from it. We don't really care. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of risk involved here because none of the other disciples none of the core disciples go uh to ask for the body of jesus it's joseph who goes and asks so it's risky for joseph mark records for us that jo that joseph gathered up courage 
to go ask for this. He knows what's at risk because he exposes himself uh, by asking for the body of Jesus to give the body a proper burial. It's risky for Nicodemus as well to ask to participate in this. It says that, J- that Nicodemus went to help bury the body. So John records this for us to show. I mean, here's two men who hold prominent positions in the culture and have a lot of tangible things at risk by exposing their alignment with Christ and their faith in Christ. And yet they do so. And keep in mind, Jesus has already died. You know, I mean, th- this, this shows you their love and their devotion for Christ because of them going and doing this. To bury a body in Jewish culture was a very humble act. But for a family, it was, it, was, it was high on the list of demonstration of devotion and love for them. Especially in carrying of spices for the body. Um, it, 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 it really demonstrates, so like for us carrying flowers. You know, if we bring flowers to a deceased, we bring, you know, come for visitation. Um, it, it showed a great demonstration of love and devotion for them. And so Joseph and Nicodemus, they go and they bury the body of Jesus, and they do this at a great risk for themselves. So you see the power of Christ's death on these two secret disciples. Remember, Nicodemus was the one who in John chapter 3 <coughs> had come to Jesus under the cloak of darkness and asked, who are you? He was curious. He really wanted to know but he did it under the cloak of darkness so that it wouldn't be exposed. And now here, under the cloak of darkness, he makes his presence known. The power of Christ's death has a significant impact on these secret disciples because their faith in Christ at some point must become expulsive. Their love and devotion for Christ overcame their fear and their desire to be safe. And there's a lesson for us there. There's risk in following Jesus in our ever-changing culture, right? I think of Nicodemus and, 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 and Joseph. I mean, here they live in a society and a culture where there are two wars that are waging. You've got the Romans, right? You have the Romans, which are bringing about Hellenism and a changing and a shifting of the entire context, and they're taking over power. Right? You think of them in a sense of the you know, secular push in a way. And the religious leaders, the Jews, are feeling that tension and yet they're holding power. And they're seeing the Romans coming in and while they're against each other, they see the, necessi- the, the functional necessity for each one to play a role. And where they otherwise would be against each other, they're now aligned in order to get rid of this Jesus guy and everybody who's following him. And so Nicodemus... And Joseph, I mean, these men who are waiting for the kingdom of God and they're seeing the things that are written about in the Old Testament. They're looking at the Romans and going, no, that's not good. That's not right. But they're also looking at the Jewish leaders and they're going, no, this isn't right either. And they're seeing the third way that Christ presents and they're going, that's it right there. But they're also seeing this is really, really risky. This is really, really risky. And we're in the same boat. The same boat as our culture makes a significant shift. And you have new secular religion that pops up and develops and pushes a, a secular moralism. And we're going, there's some good things that are about that, but there's a foundation there that's not good at all. It doesn't even have a foundation. 
And we see in Christ that third way, and we have to navigate through that. But it becomes very, very risky for us as Christians. Where you have a fractured government that seeks to exert growing strength, and then you have this new secular moral culture that's for everything but Christianity. So we're all for, all for all of that except Jesus. I think I can speak for Alan. I say we as pastors are not necessarily as worried about COVID, even though that poses a risk for sure. Don't downplay any of it. But there's a far greater mounding risk of being a Christian in the coming years. And that risk will creep into the comforts and confront our sense of security and challenge us as to what it means to be a faithful Christian. And there'll be a temptation to lay hold of a pseudo-Christianity that's marked more by American individualism and autonomy than it is by being a bondservant of Christ. You see, that's, I mean, that, do you see that's what Joseph and what Nicodemus were facing. That's why they didn't align themselves with the, you know, with the Jewish leaders. That's not what the Old Testament had promised. That's not what God is doing. And it was extremely risky for them. So let me ask you, what are you doing now to prepare your hearts for those things? I don't think Joseph and Nicodemus kind of fully anticipated that there was going to be a day where they would have to step out of the shadows. And yet it was. But that's the nature of Christian faith, isn't it? If the world as an entity is darkened and against God and against the gospel, and the nature of the gospel and the nature of the gospel within our hearts is to change our hearts, to make us more like Christ, and then it has an expulsive power that necessarily puts us in community, not only with other Christians, but then other people who are lost, then it's going to have, it's going to begin to rub shoulders with the sharper, more rough edges of the culture, and the culture and the people in it are not necessarily going to like it, and oftentimes will be vehemently against it. So what are you doing now to prepare for what is to come? What are you doing to love Jesus more? Has your devotion to the Lord? Is it, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'll do my Bible study, I'll go to church until it's not convenient. Or until something that's more comfortable and more convenient comes along. Is there a renewing of your mind that goes on? Or is the gospel the same old song and dance? And are you a Nicodemus or a Joseph who needs to step out of the shadows? And that may look different for each person. Not everybody stepping out of the shadows for every Christian isn't necessarily going to mean going out on a street corner and preaching the gospel. But it may mean taking you across the street to have an intentional gospel conversation with a neighbor. 
it may be sitting down with a coworker and say, look, you know, you and I've talked for a long time, you know, and I know I've said some things that I probably shouldn't. I may not have conducted myself in a certain way, but the Lord's put this on my heart, and I really want to talk to you about it. Maybe that's reconciliation in broken relationships. Maybe that's a spouse. Maybe that's a relative, a brother, a sister. Maybe that's stepping up and saying, you know, kids, I've not done a good job of leading you and pointing you to, to Jesus. It's, I'm going to do a better job of that. Are you a Joseph or Nicodemus who needs to step out of the shadows? So Joseph and Nicodemus exert bold faith in the midst of much, much risk in order to bury the body of Christ. And then they go and they bury Jesus. So I want to shift from being challenged in our faith to stirring our faith. So I want to look at, and I didn't even count these, so give me a second. One, two, three, four, five. I want to look at five key things that John points to here in the burial of Jesus that I hope will help us See, one, the, pr- the proof of Jesus' actual death is humiliation, um, but then point towards his exaltation. So I want for us to, for a moment to just stand in the tomb of Christ and see him being exalted and just cause our hearts to be stirred and worship him. Okay? As I mentioned earlier, John, I think John has a dual purpose in recording the burial of Jesus. Um, one, that it's proof of Jesus' actual death. Remember, John said, you know, I'm an eyewitness. I'm an eyewitness. I saw these things, and I'm recording them. You know, to persuade you that this actually happened. This wasn't some just fanciful fairy tale. This was a real event that occurred in time and history with real people who could be verified. I mean, why does John say Nicodemus and, uh, and Joseph of Arimathea? I mean, here are two prominent people in culture that you could in that time walk up to and say, excuse me, sir, please tell me about what happened at the burial of Jesus. And they tell you. The other gospel writers uh, in, include Mary and uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, uh, Mary, the mother of Joseph, who also were attended. So you got four individuals there who were eyewitnesses to the fact that, yeah, we took him down off the cross. He was dead. We we buried him under Jewish law. It was it, it was. It, it was a, a horrific atrocity trying to pin words here so you know but just to kind of paint that picture it was a horrific atrocity for you to bury somebody who was not dead and so when they buried people they made sure this person is dead 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 you know we don't make a mistake on this And so when they went to bury Jesus let me kind of just paint a picture of what happened cuz I, I want to give you some background for the, the tomb, um, burial prep, you know, these types of things, because these kind of lay a good foundation for the things that John, that John, excuse me, John includes. So a Jewish tomb that was carved into rock, there was a low door, you know, very, it was not a tall door, you know, it was a low door, hence we find Mary had to, later we'll read, Mary had to stoop to get into the door. It was a low door um, that you stepped into a chamber that was cut out of the rock, uh, usually there were a couple you know, benches, basically, that were either carved out or set in place so the mourners could sit and mourn over the dead. Um, and then you had, um, in, in a family 
in a family tomb, you would have niches that were cut into the stone, long niches in which a body was placed, basically. And there were two burials. There was a primary burial and a secondary burial. Okay? The first burial was when the body uh, was wrapped in linen, clothes, you know, linen strips, either the limbs were wrapped individually in linen, um, or the body was covered in a shroud or, you know, a cloth. Sometimes it was just the linen, sometimes it was just the cloth, sometimes it was a mixture of both. And we read in uh, one of John's, one of the other gospel accounts that for Jesus it was both. No, he was wrapped in linen strips and then covered in a shroud. So they were put in the shroud and oftentimes they were, uh, there were spices that were mixed in with so as the limbs were wrapped with the linen the spices were you know intermixed for it um, I didn't get a chance to really dig into a lot of the detail on the spices and things um, but one of the primary purposes was to stave off the the stench and the smell of a decaying body as people mourned you know for this so that was the first burials the body is you know prepped Jews didn't burn bodies as the Romans did and they didn't mutilate the bodies in order to uh, embalm them as the Egyptians the bodies were maintained whole um, and so that's the primary burial they're put into you know one of those uh, little alcoves one of those niches now in some cases where you had an individual just a single there was a low trough almost, or instead of being cut into the wall, the niche was placed, you know, on, on the ground. So you walked in, and the body is down here, and you would sit, you know, a around it, basically. It's in the floor. Um, and that was, uh, that was the case as far as, as far as archaeologists and, well, as far as historians know, this was the case with Jesus. It was a single tomb. It wasn't a family tomb. Um, and so Jesus was placed you know, in a low-lying trough or a niche in the ground rather than on the, you know, on the sides. Um, but the second burial, in a year or so after the soft tissue had decayed, um, the family or, you know, whoever was in charge of the grave site would come back and would take the bones and place them in a box and put the box in a smaller niche in, in the tomb. So you could see how, from just a practical standpoint, this is very efficient, um, you know, that you can, you can put a big family in a relatively small tomb, basically. So, but there's a primary burial and a secondary burial, okay? Um, and so this was, the, this was the Jewish custom of burials. When John talks about this, this is already in the minds of his first century uh, readers, particularly those who were Jewish. <clears throat> um, and, and there was a great significance of death for the Jews, right? Because death was the primary indicator of the consequence of sin. I know, I mean, this was written throughout all of the Old Testament, that when a person dies, it is clear death occurs because of sin. You know, the consequences, as Paul writes, the wages of sin is death. He doesn't just pull this out of the air or Google it and go, let's come up with a you know, cute phrase that's going to stick in people's minds that we'll put on the backs of T-shirts and bumper stickers. No, no, no. The, the wages of sin is death. I mean, that was written into their culture, into their history. It's all over the Old Testament. So there's a huge significance of the, this, that when mourners gathered for, for the death of, of a loved one, it was clear, you know, we, we mourn for the loss, but there's also a deeper, a deeper, richer truth here. We say this should not happen. It's because of sin. The death was the, death is the, is the result of We've got sin in our lives. We, and this is, this is a reminder. This is a reminder that sin is still present. 
But further, touching a dead body was also, uh, the, in, uh, there was significance in touching a dead body. Um, in the Old Testament, if you touched a dead body, you were considered unclean. You had to go to, through certain processes to, to be cleansed, basically. Um, and so all of these things kind of coming together, again, right here before the Sabbath. So a lot of things are having to take place in order for Jesus to be buried before the Sabbath comes. So Nicodemus and Joseph um, and and the two Marys, they're you know they're hurrying to you know to get to get Jesus buried properly and respectably and with honor, um, but perhaps not knowing exactly the full weight of the honor that they'd be giving him. And so it's a reminder for us, you know, as, as, as I bring these customs up, it's not just so that you know, you know, cool facts and stuff. But it's a reminder that these, cu- that these customs are kept and they're recorded here because of who's being buried. Remember, all things point to Christ, right? And so we see in, in these customs and in this burial that had preceded Christ's incarnation. This was going on for centuries, we see in this a pointing forward to the significance of the one who's buried right now. So I want to look at those five aspects that were part of the Jewish custom that were, and, or that were just occurring right here. I want to show you how, how do these point towards Jesus and his exaltation, what he would do. The first is the linen wrappings. Okay, Jesus was wrapped in the linen cloth. Okay, he was covered in a, in a li- white linen shroud. And here we see the justice and the mercy of God coming together. Okay, white linen was used in burial primarily for righteous individuals, but it was also used in the garments of the priests. You know, this was a humble honor to wrap a, a dead body. Now, clearly connected, this person's dead, this is evidence that sin is present, yet we're going to wrap them, wrap them in a white shroud, right? I mean, you think of just the humility of that. This person's not... They're not righteous, they're not right standing in God of themselves, and yet we're going to wrap them in a white shroud, right? I'm reminded in Zacharias 3 where there's a, uh, Zacharias sees a, uh, a vision from God, and the high priest is standing there before God, and he's covered in filthy clothes, and Satan is standing there accusing him. And he's rightly accusing him. This man's not fit to stand before you. Lord, your justice demands punishment, and the Lord says to the high priest, now keep in mind in this picture, the high priest here symbolizes the people of God, symbolizes Israel, whom God had punished. God had punished Jerusalem and was punishing Jerusalem for their sin. And God turns to Satan and says, is this not a firebrand plucked from the fire? Indicating, yes, even though I am just and I will punish and I am going and I, and I have been punishing Upon my mercy, I will save a people for myself. And then he turns to the high priest and he says, take off those dirty clothes. I will clothe you in vestal robes. I've taken your iniquity away from you. Right? And here is, here is Christ. Because that doesn't just happen. God just doesn't go, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, you're pardoned. There's got to be a balancing out. His justice has to go somewhere in order for pardon to happen. And here is Christ, our high priest, who took away our sin, right? Who's laid in his burial, and he's clothed in white linen, symbolizing his purity. But what's interesting is when he is 
raised. What we'll see when he returns is he's clothed in a robe that is blood-soaked. Now, that is blood-soaked in the wrath of God poured out on the nations who don't have faith in Christ. But for those who have peace in him and trust in him, it's his own blood. In Revelation 7, there's a picture John sees in heaven. John's standing and he sees a multitude of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and they're praising God and they're giving glory to Him and honor, uh, you know, you're worthy of all honor and glory and praise and majesty to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And one of the elders who's standing there with John turns to him and says, who are these people who are clothed in white robes? All All those, the multitudes from every tribe and every tongue and nation are clothed in white robes. And John says, you know who they are, basically saying, okay, you tell me, fill me in, I, you know, I'm, I'm just writing here, <laughs> I'm recording, you tell me. And the elder says, he said, they, these are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white by the blood of the Lamb. Truly Christ, who was laid in a tomb, clothed in a white linen shroud, raised and wears a robe dipped in blood, says to those who have faith in him, though your sins are as scarlet, red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. It's a picture of gospel, isn't it? It's a picture of faith in Jesus, that the blood of Jesus propitiates the justice of God for all who have faith in him, that we might receive his mercy and his pardon. And he gives us that pure robe of righteousness. And we don't look at that and go, I've earned this. No, it's by grace he's given it to us. If you're a Christian and you have faith in God, faith in Christ, you stand justified before God, wearing a robe of white righteousness, purity, because of the shed blood of Jesus. The justice and the mercy of God come together in the cross, and we see it in Jesus being wrapped in a white linen cloth and white linen shroud. But he's also covered in myrrh and spices, right? These spices, these strong spices, as I said, were to stave off the smell of the decaying body while people mourned, right? And, and that was a futile effort. I mean, think about the humility of that, you know? How long is that going to last? I don't know if you've ever walked into, you know, ba- Bath and Body Works around Christmas time, but, I mean, that knocks you out. That's pretty strong. You know, there are some strong smelling spices and stuff in this world, but they only last for so long. They're only temporary. Those spices would only go so far. It was only a matter of time before the body would begin to decay, and the smell would permeate that tomb. But you see the humility that's in that. We're going to do the best we can. But it's only going to go so far. We know the inevitable is going to happen. But Jesus, however, he didn't undergo that decay. Instead, he was raised. And he, was, he became an eternal, fragrant aroma to God for the nations. You think in the Old Testament, all the Old Testament sacrifices, all, te- all the times in the Old Testament where it talks about a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Gives an indication of a of, of a life or an offering burnt out in a sense for God's glory. And God says, that's pleasing to me. 
And this should give assurance to us that Christ's sacrifice is pleasing for our sake. Doesn't that mean you think about how many times in the Old Testament they had to go do the offering, you know, burn the incense, all of these things over and over and over and over. And Jesus says once. Once. The aroma that I present before the Lord on your behalf never goes away. It's always pleasing to him. What a comfort, what an assurance that is for those of us who have faith in Christ. But it's also a challenge for us, isn't it? You know that white robe? It's not like a bathrobe where you put it on and go, okay, now I'm going to go cuddle up in front of the TV and binge on Netflix. No, I mean, that's, that's a work garment. There's work to be done. And so the aroma that Christ presents before the Lord is a challenge for us. This is what Paul writes to the Ephesians. He says, walk in love, therefore, church, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That our lives as Christians are to be burnt out, in a sense, spent for the holy good of others because that's what Christ did for us. Paul wrote it this way. As Paul traveled to different cities and he preached the gospel and he planted churches and he discipled and he invested in people and he loved them spiritually, physically, com- you know, in a complete manner. He said, but thanks be to God, he wrote this to the Corinthians, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, who manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of God in every place. Do you, do you see that connection? Paul, where Paul looked and he saw that sacrifice of Christ being a fragrant aroma and what it did to him in his life. And he said, this is, this is what my job is as I go, as I'm a fragrant aroma to the nations with the gospel. It says, for one death to death, He went knowing there are some people who will not believe the gospel. But for others, life to life. This is what we're called to be, is to be a fragrant aroma. So what is the sense of your life? I have to ask myself, does my life smell like Jesus? When others get around me, do they, do they smell Jesus? And I'm not like, you know, my spouting Bible at them all left and right. But am, am I reading and studying the Scripture saying, Lord, show me who you are. Show me your character. Show me your nature. Show, you, show me what I'm to be being created in your image and redeemed by the, blo- by the blood of Christ that I might be a pleasing aroma to you in the way that I love and interact people, interact with people. Does my life smell like Jesus? life that's the challenge that I read this and ask am I doing this or does it smell like something else you know you don't take a shower for a few days you're going to smell like something right you know it's not good you don't really kind of have an an option you go long enough you're going to smell like something and it's true for our lives it smells like something what does it smell like 
So Joseph and 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 uh, and, and Nicodemus, you know, they they take Jesus, and they wrap him in the cloth with the spices. And John says that they placed him in a garden. It's interesting because John's the only one that mentions the garden. Now, that's not to say, well, you know, what is it a garden? Is it not? But John intentionally mentions the garden. And I, and I, and I think it's interesting, and I don't think it's just by happenstance. I mean, I think he mentions it because it was there was a garden that was close by. They needed it, you know, for expediency. Um, you know, it's not like, oh, it was convenient. It's like, we need a place. And Joseph said, I have a tomb that's for myself. Here it is. It's in this garden. But it shouldn't pass our our sight that sin was first born in a garden, in the Garden of Eden. And now it's conquered in a garden where Christ will bear the first fruits of new birth. If, you, if you've ever done any gardening or, you know, yard work and stuff, you know that, that, that winter's not the end. In a sense, it's a preparation for what comes in the spring. And a good winter, no, will lay a fine foundation for a good harvest come spring. So the winter of Eden, in a sense, was the preparation for the spring of Golgotha. And there's a sovereign hand in that that we see. I think that's what John wants us to see. There's a sovereign hand in that that God connects and he brings about everything that he's predestined and determined to occur. You know, and that should give us such hope and comfort when the dark days of spiritual winter set in. So Jesus is placed in a garden, and then he's also placed in a new tomb. All the, the, uh, all the, the gospel writers write this, that says that Jesus was laid, they laid him in a new tomb in which no one had been laid. Right? The psalmist writes in Psalm 16 that, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And Paul quotes this in a sermon he preaches in Acts 13. He quotes that, and as he preaches it, what he's, what he's saying is that the decay of, a, uh, of the body is a definite sign of the curse of sin. And he's saying, you all know this. He said, but because Jesus was ridden, was risen, because he didn't undergo that decay, we have forgiveness of sins from which no law and acquit us. But we find here further that God would not even allow the body of Jesus to be surrounded by decay. Right? In another tomb, you could potentially go in there. There's the sight of the bones of decaying, of another decaying body in there. And the Lord sovereignly carves out a new tomb. No decay present. No smell present. I will not allow my, my, my Holy One to undergo decay. But there's further significance in that too because Christ is the fulfillment. I think we see here Christ being the fulfillment of a particular sacrifice in the Old Testament. That of the, the red heifer that was, that was given in Numbers 19. Now I know Numbers 19 is a favorite passage for you as it is to me, so turn to on a rainy day, um, but uh, I'd like to turn there just to look at it briefly. Um, in, in the Old Testament, if uh, I mentioned earlier, if a person touched a body, they were unclean, and they had to go through certain rituals, uh, certain things to, to be cleansed. 
And here the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron and he gives them uh, a gives them the ordinance of the red heifer. And he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Take an unblemished red heifer, red cow with red hair, on which there's no defect, unblemished, and upon whom no, you've not put a yoke. I can't help but read that and think, Christ, in whom there is no deceit, unblemished. Christ, who says, come to me, for my burden is light, my yoke is easy. He tells him, take this heifer outside the camp, take it outside the walls and sacrifice it. Where was Christ sacrificed? Outside the walls of Jerusalem. Take it, burn it, take the ashes and mix it with water. Here's what he says in verse 9. He says, the priest is supposed to do this, and the priest has to go and wash themselves. Uh, there's a process there. But then he says, a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And the congregation and the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is for the purification of sins. And we read this and we go, why in the world is this here? And I read this and I go, here's, here's Christ, right? I mean, this was done. You touch a dead body. You, you've got to go and you've got to have this, you know, this red cow's ashes mixed with water sprinkled on you and you're clean over and over and over. Why, why is this here? What's the wages of sin is death, right? You have in Ezekiel the picture of the valley of the dry bones. I mean, it's clear throughout the Old Testament that we are without Christ and before we know Christ, we are dead men walking. You don't have to go touch a dead body, you know, to be unclean. You're a dead body walking and you are unclean. And here is Christ taken down from the cross, covered in blood and red, sacrificed for the cleansing of sin. He's taken by a righteous man. He's not, a, he's not, he's not, spotless and impure, you know, and impure, but he's hoping for the kingdom of God. He's putting his faith in Christ. He's taken and he's laid in a clean place, in a new tomb in which there's no decay. No dead body has, has been in there, outside the camp. And he is the spring of living water. Where do you go for the purification of sin? You go to the cross. You go to Christ. So do you find yourself unclean this New Year's? Come to the one, the only one who can make you clean. Guilt and shame from, from failings. Maybe that's the failure to do good last year. And I look back on a lot of the things that happened this past year, and I'm like, I, there, I missed so many opportunities to do good things. Maybe it's a failure in doing evil. Maybe there's sin and corruption that's gotten the better, gotten the best of you recently. And you just can't get past it. Christ says, come to me. Wash, be washed in my blood and be made clean. Wear my robe of righteousness. Be made new. Now go and walk in newness of life.
And you say, well, I already did that. I did that when I was 12. I did that when I was 20. I did that when... No, and this is the message of the gospel, repentance and faith. You wake up tomorrow, and I, I'm impure. I'm not right. Come. Come to the one who was sacrificed for the cleansing of sin. And then walk in newness of life. So Jesus was laid in a new tomb. He was clothed in white linen. He was, his body was immersed in a scent or covered in spices. He was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. He was righteousness. He was purity that was given for our sake that we might become righteous. He was placed in a garden where the first fruits of his death would come out of. And all of this was done before the Sabbath, the day of rest, signifying that the true work of salvation was finished. No more work needed. No more sacrifices. No more, no more, no, no more. It was done. Your sins are paid in full. I mentioned the secular religion that, that permeates or that, that is growing in strength in our culture and, the, and it saddles people with guilt and the need to fix that guilt. You've got to do social payments for moral failings, even if they're not your own. Thanks be to God who's given us Christ. Gives us peace. Gives us rest. And says, the work's done. I've paid for it all. Come and I will give you rest. I hope these are encouraging to you. And as I've studied them, it's caused me just to see further the value and the beauty of Christ. But also challenged me to step out in faith and ask the Lord, Lord, where are areas in my life that I could be a fragrant aroma for you that I'm just missing? Stir my heart and stir my affections. I can't help but think of Joseph and Nicodemus when they decided to go you know, and, and approach Pilate. That it was a, it, it was a, it was a compulsion of love and devotion that said, "I'm going to go. It's going to be hard. It's going to be risky, but I'm going to go." So I have to ask the Lord for this year. Lord, give me that same sense of stirring that I love Christ and I see Him clearly. This side of the cross, this side of the tomb, that would stir me to live out my faith in a way that honors Christ and brings the gospel to other people, even if it's at great great risk. So let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your word, the depth that it provides, the richness, Father, but also the humble challenge. That's why I ask, Father, that you would Stir our affections for Christ that we would see him more grand and glorious. And that, Father, that, that stirring of our hearts would cause our hands and our feet and our mouths to move. Contrary to our sin nature, but in line with your spirit that you give us. To exalt your name. To love others in tangible ways, whether that's as simply as picking up the phone. 
or breaching a conversation that we have feared for a while. So Father, would you stir boldness in us for your name, for your exaltation, that we might one day stand in your presence clothed in that white robe of righteousness and hear your words, your pleasing aroma because of my son. Enter into my presence. It's what we long for, Father. It's what we hope for. We give you all the praise and all the glory for this next year, whatever your sovereign hand holds. Father, may we at the end of the day be faithful to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. It's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance towards you. May he give you peace. You're dismissed.